All right, you folks can be seated. It's good to have you guys here today. Yeah, uh, the pre-K through fifth graders are heading upstairs. Younger than that are hanging out downstairs. Let's see. I'm going to grab, I might grab this. All right, so welcome, welcome. Let's see. Toby, could you up my level just a little bit? All right. Okay, so uh, good morning. Good morning. Wow, it's good to have you guys here today. Uh, so my sermon, we're gonna, we've been going through a series in the book of Acts, but we're going to take a, a little detour today and do a standalone sermon, I guess, is what you might, might call it. So it's going to be a, a topic that's uh, a little bit different, but is, uh, I guess, appropriate for what is being celebrated this coming week. And no, it's not a sermon about Halloween. That's a good guess. But, uh, but it turns out that uh, 500 years ago, this Tuesday, was when Martin Luther right, nailed the 95 theses on the church door. And, uh, and that might not seem like that big of a deal. And, and just so you're aware, we love uh, Catholics. We're not like anti-Catholic by celebrating the Reformation. Uh, but what we do celebrate is the Bible, all right? Like, I mean, we've already been talking about that today. We love Jesus. We love the Bible. And what's, what's cool is that, right, Martin Luther, and, right, we don't idolize him. We don't put him in a place of un inappropriateness, right? We don't put him on a pedestal or anything like that. But he was simply a man that read the Bible, all right? And, and as a result of reading the Bible, the church was changed and the world was changed. So it was, that was the significant thing that happened. And, and even after that movement kind of picked up steam, he never credited it to himself or his own writings or even the, uh, the people that kind of rallied behind that movement. What he credited it to was the Word of God, just simply the Bible being read by the average person. And that this understanding that all people all right, religious authorities or not, are, are held accountable to this biblical standard. And one of the ways that he came to that conclusion was after he had already thoroughly invested his life in the religious system and traditions of his day and found them wanting. That as he experienced this, right, as he pursued these things and became a monk and even a priest and, uh, right, did, did all of these things and, right, he was obsessed with this idea of confession because he had this uh, inappropriate fear that if he didn't confess even one sin, if he failed to remember to confess one sin to another person, that what if he died and was then held under judgment by God? So he had this dreadful fear. But then he ends up being liberated from that fear with the fullness of joy as he read in the scriptures and devoured them and found out that that is not the God of the Bible, that that is not what God was about, that God loves us, God died for us when we were his enemies, right? And God makes us the righteousness of God, his own righteousness in Christ, that when we find ourselves in Christ, we are the righteousness of of God. And so instead of, because uh, the monks at the day, they would study the, the works of philosophers, or sometimes they wouldn't even study the Bible. They would study commentary on the scriptures. But as he went and looked at the Bible itself, he realized he couldn't stay silent about what he found was written in there. 
And so this shift ended up having these huge, significant results that then as he broadcast like his concerns, and he was trying to work from within the church. So it wasn't like he was anti-church. He was just like, hey guys, I, I've been studying this and you know, I'm a theologian for you guys and this is what I'm noticing. Like how can we solve these problems, right? What can we do to resolve these things that I'm seeing that seem, there seems to be a disconnect between what we're doing and what the Bible says, right? And so that's a healthy way to deal with things. That's what, that's what Jesus did as well because religious people, just so you're aware, all of us have the tendency to sometimes get off track sometimes. Right? Even in Jesus' day, when he dealt with the Pharisees, the ones who would memorize Scripture in the Old Testament, he was like, listen, you guys are missing it here. You're so caught up in all of these little minute details, and you're missing these bigger concerns about justice and mercy. Right? That you're so caught up on, on religious self-righteousness and making yourself look good in front of other people, but yet your heart is sadly far from God. And so, so Jesus dealt with it, and it, it just points out to the, the caution that we must have as believers, right? Caution over our own hearts that sometimes we might fall in traditions and patterns that are different than what God would say. But the good news is that we have the scriptures, right? The good news is that we are all accountable to the scriptures, that, that like as right, a leader here or whatever, right? I don't get to say something that contradicts the scriptures and then let that stand, right? That, that anyone could just be like, hey, Brian, I I was just reading the Bible, and this is different than what you were saying. And, right, I have to yield to the authority of God's Word, right? So that's like a really cool and healthy place to be as a church, that we've got leaders in our church that, right, help balance it out and hold me accountable. And as we're all studying the Bible together, we're, we're hopefully becoming closer and closer to what God would want us to be. But that's one of the big changes that happened as a result of this, is that all men, all people were under the authority of Scripture, that what they claimed could not overrule Scripture, that if there's a contradiction between right, what I or any religious leader would say and what the Bible says, that we assume that God is telling the truth and that all men are liars, right? That, that's, that's what the Bible actually says in it. And, and so that was one of these big shifts. And another one was just this idea of, of salvation. The whole system through which we are forgiven isn't based on our own religious good works, that we're not forgiven as a result of trying to do everything right or live according to the Ten Commandments or the law, but we are made right through faith in Jesus by trusting what Jesus has done for us, and it's completely rested on that. That, that Jesus didn't bring it most of the way, and then I'm like covering some of the cost out of my own pocket to pay for my own salvation? No, right? And, and sadly, in his day, one of the things he was noticing was there was this idea of indulgences that through right, paying money or, or visiting relics that my sins could be forgiven or even some of my future sins could be forgiven or I could pay for the sins of those who had already been deceased. But that doesn't make sense. The Bible says that right, we were not redeemed by unrighteous money, right? that, that, that we were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. And it rests solely on what works Jesus had accomplished for us, that I can't bring anything to that table. It's just an undeserved gift. And so, so here we go. Let me, let me take this look first at uh, this idea of biblical authority. So, so this is the idea. I can't change what the Word of God says. That's, like, that's refreshing good news, all right? I can't override what the Word of God says, and neither can anyone else. That authority, sadly, does have the potential of being abused. 
okay, that, that if we only adhered to what one person's interpretation of the Scriptures were, right, like that person could easily take advantage of that, that person could easily, right, uh, lead people astray, even, even just honestly in their own mistakes. And just so you're aware, I make, I make mistakes, all right? I've grown in my theology over time. I don't believe the same things that I did when I was a teenager when I first started reading the Scripture, all right? That hopefully as we continue to study the Word of God, it corrects and realigns and refocuses some of the things that we believe about God or ourselves or the world that we live in. So we don't... Uh, we don't just go towards the side of authority only or viewing one person's interpretation of Scripture as being the end-all and be-all. But we also are cautious of this idea of rebellion because we know in our human heart, like our flesh loves to stick it to the man, right? We love to resist authority. And so we also don't want to just go towards that end because that's something that the enemy can take advantage of as well. All right, so this is one of the interesting things is that uh, here's a quote from, from one of the books that I've been reading about Luther. It says, Luther opened the Bible for everyone to read. And because this implies that all interpretations were equal, which Luther clearly did not believe, right? He wasn't just saying that everyone's opinions about God were equally true. But what he did want to do was open the Bible for everyone that they could see what the scriptures said for themselves, right? That when a religious leader would say something that contradicted it, they could be like, wait a minute, what about this verse? All right, and so there was this balance that he had to figure out. So, so the Bible, right, we have this idea that God gives us this gift of those who are pastors and teachers and evangelists and prophets, right? Uh, but here, right, it says Luther, he set himself up as a guide and teacher and knew that there was no substitute for this any more than that there was a substitute for reading the Bible on their own. Everyone, uh, either one, taken to an extreme had grave problems. Anyone reading the Bible without an understanding of what he had read would certainly fall into error. But anyone who refused to read the Bible and only allowed others to interpret it made it possible that he would be listening to interpreters that were theologically wrong. All right, this is a big idea. No one can have a relationship with God for us, right? I can't do that for you. Your grandmother can't do that for you. It can't be done. Therefore, no one can take full responsibility for how we read the scriptures. At some point, we have the personal responsibility to be involved. And so that's one of the great things that we have is we have the scriptures available to us. In Luther's day, it was rare, right? The things that were being preached were already kind of pre-processed, pre-digested by theologians. And people weren't reading the scriptures. Even once Luther became a monk, they actually took his Bible away and he was only reading the ancient philosophers or different Bible commentaries, right? And, and so we want to all allow our hearts to be exposed to the Bible. And one of the things Luther ended up doing was he translated his uh, Latin Bible uh, and the Greek Bible, right? He translated it into the contemporary German of his day amongst the people. And that actually shouldn't be that crazy. That makes sense. And one of the reasons is, is this, that the, uh, the original Bible was written in Koine Greek, the New Testament was, okay? And it was the, the language, the common language of the people. It was the language of the marketplace. That when the disciples originally wrote down scripture, they intended it to be read and understood by the regular average person, all right? That it shouldn't be hidden and veiled behind languages that we don't understand. Right? That church services should be done in a language that those who are present can, can grasp. Right? That that's what should be done. And so that's one of the things that he did. And so as a result, all people then could hear and understand the scriptures. 
This was tremendous, right? This brought us back to what the goal was with the original early church. And one of the things as a result is that, right, we in authority have no ability to override what's in the scriptures when all of you, right, are familiar with what they say. So yes, I want to be able to, right, take the scriptures and put them into a sermon and deliver it to you on a Sunday, but I don't want that to be your only meal, right? You need to learn to read it for yourself. And as a result, right, whenever, right, we've got to be careful that we in our hearts might at times be offended at what we find in the Bible. And that's okay, all right? That's okay because if I, when I first read the Bible, just like suddenly agreed with everything there, the God that that Bible would describe wouldn't be a God worth worshiping, all right? Because a God who thought the way I thought about everything when I first became a Christian wouldn't be a good God, okay? Wouldn't be a good God. And so there will be cases in which God's word is different than my predisposed opinion on something. And that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. And, and when we are offended with the scriptures at times, right, we don't have the authority to change it. And this is great. One of the things I like, uh, Pastor Doug LaPlante says, he says, uh, right, I'm, I'm in sales, not management, right? That, that pastors, we don't have the ability to change what we're preaching, right? We're, this is just the thing that we're distributing, right? This is all I've got. I don't get to decide what is true and what isn't. And, and also good news in the Bible is that it says that teachers, those who teach the word of God, are actually held to stricter judgment. Yeah, they are more accountable. So it's actually, like the Bible warns us, like it's a good thing to pursue that gift of teaching, but also be careful because preaching false doctrine, right, even if it's like by accident, has the potential of spreading a false idea to many more people. All right, that's something that we need to be careful. And just so you're aware, uh, not all of my sermons are perfect. I make mistakes in them. I might focus or emphasize the wrong part of a passage, and that's why I want you to be familiar with the Word of God. That's why I want, right, and I will get there. Don't worry, Toby. I will have some Bible verses today, all right? So that way you can see this isn't just Brian's thoughts. This isn't just Brian's opinions, right? I mean, even just in those last uh, couple of months, I know I've said wrong things in my sermons. Fortunately, they've been somewhat minor, Right, like back in Acts, I said like that John the Apostle was probably the one traveling with Paul, but no, it wasn't. It was John Mark, and it was just an honest mistake. I wasn't trying to deceive you, but I want you to be familiar with the Bible enough that you'd be like, ah, Brian, I think was wrong on that one. Or like we had sung the song Cornerstone one morning, and then when talking about Peter, I ended up saying that Peter was a cornerstone of the church. That's not true. But it was just like I mixed up my parts of buildings and foundation, right? And so that's okay, right? I wasn't trying to deceive you guys to say that like Peter was the cornerstone of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. I probably meant to say pillar or something like that, right? So, so I just want to point out like I will misspeak. I won't be perfect. I might emphasize the wrong thing in some passages, but as we as a church are familiar with the word of God, we will grow together, right? We will hold each other accountable when need be. And this is a wonderfully healthy place to be, right? That's a wonderful place to be, okay? Uh, So all of us have the potential of being corrected by scripture. In case uh, last week when Joe was preaching, he was talking about Apollos, right? He he accurately taught the way of God, but then, right, uh, Nope, I was just going to say, Anna. Who, what were their names? What were their names? Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila. You guys are good. You guys are good. 
right? There we go, uh, right? Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and taught him more accurately about Jesus. That's wonderful, right? That's wonderful to be able to teach each other more about what God's Word says. And uh, so this is one of the things Martin Luther says about those who teach the Bible. He says, necessity forces us to run to the Bible with the writings of all teachers and to obtain there a verdict and judgment upon them. Scripture alone is the true Lord and master of all writings and doctrines on earth. All right, so even though God does grant authority to people, God does give gifts of teachers, right? Jesus also warned us to be aware of false teachers and false prophets, okay? And then even when I'm trying to be genuine here, right, and I might fumble my words or say the wrong thing, right, then like we can still catch that. And that's great, right? We want to get closer and closer to the truth. So, so this is one of the ideas is that we want all people to be familiar with and have access to the Word of God. And like we of any generation have more access than any that had existed before us, right? Even if you're not good at reading or you have a hard time with that, you can just like plug in some earphones and like get it on your phone and just listen to the Bible, right? If, if some of these certain translations of the Bible are, are difficult or unfamiliar, right, you can listen to one that's in a more modern type of English that's easier to understand. In fact, today, not yet, I'm going to put some Bible verses on the screen that are the New Living Translation, all right, which is just very easy to understand, okay? It's very easy to hear and, and understand, and it's not as confusing. It's not using, like, super theological words to describe things. Typically, I teach out of the English Standard Version, but today, to cover more ground, I'm just like, I'm just going to preach something that's, like, super easy to hear that I won't have to, like, define every other word right? So, like, that's easier for us, and that's fine. And in this case, I think it does a pretty good job getting to the original meaning anyway. But more significantly than, right, the Bible as authority is this idea of salvation by grace, all right? That we don't have to fear God, that we are those who, if I was to rely on my own good works, it says in the book of Isaiah that my righteousness is but filthy rags before the Lord, Right, that, that like I can't somehow like through enough good obtain God's favor, that I can't be righteous on my own account. And trying to be good enough on my own, that literally is self-righteousness, right? That's self-righteousness, trying to be good enough on my own. But the good news is that God has a solution to this, that God has a solution to this, right? Because we should recognize there are parts of our lives that don't meet God's standard right, that we fall short all the time, all right, and so that should have this tension in us of like, how am I going to be good enough to, right, get into heaven or whatever, right, if that was the way it was done, which fortunately it isn't, and hopefully by looking at the scriptures, not just Brian's words, you'll believe that today. So let's, let's open up to Romans chapter 1, all right, here we go, uh, and I'm going to be reading from Romans 1, 3, 4, and 5, and I'm going to be cruising and you're like, Brian, you're already half done your sermon. You're like going to run out of time. Don't worry. It'll be good. We'll make it. We'll make it. All right. So Romans 1 verse uh, 16. And this is one of the passage that, passages that had first compelled Martin Luther and to start looking at the discrepancies between religious tradition and what the Bible said. All right. So this is Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Did I actually forget this verse? That's so funny. That is so funny. All right, but you guys have your Bibles. Even if I tried to hide the Bible from you, you've got access to it, right? You can see that. So follow along on what you got. So 
It says this, this is the Apostle Paul speaking and writing to the church in Rome. He says, for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ, about Jesus. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person shall live. Or the older way to say that is the just shall live by faith. Now the word faith, I will define some of these words, don't worry. I said this is easy to read, but I'll I'll still tell you what it means, okay? Uh, The word faith just means to trust. To trust what God says, to believe, all right? To believe the things that God says about himself, about ourselves, and about our world. That's what faith is. And what's great here is it says that, right, that this is accomplished, God makes us right in his sight through faith, through simply just believing, all right, believing what God said. That's how I made right, all right? And, and I wouldn't want you to walk away with just that one verse because one verse sometimes isn't enough to convince ourselves of what's true, okay? So let's, let's jump to Romans chapter 3, verse 9, all right? And this is, this is the Apostle Paul writing, like seriously, Paul is like this logical ninja. He is awesome. Like, read the book of Romans, and he just, like, analyzes the argument from every side. He asks a lot of rhetorical questions and then answers them for you. Like, seriously, this, you got to check this out. Uh, But Romans 3, uh, verse 9, he says, Well, then, should we conclude that we Jews, Paul was of Jewish background, are better than others? Rhetorical question. All right? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin, as the scriptures say. And so, even the New Testament, right, they are quoting from the Old Testament to justify any of the claims that they were making. He says, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All right? And so, this is the first big deal. And this isn't great news right now, right? You, you might be like, I thought Paul said this was good news. And wait, oh, no one is righteous. Like, no, no one, not even one. That doesn't sound like great news uh, to begin with. But sometimes by clearly defining the problem, it will better make us understand the solution, okay? And so this is the problem that we have. This is the problem that Martin Luther had. He, he realized, he's like, I am so far from this righteous God. How could I ever go into his presence? The first time he did a mass, when he had the communion elements, he like completely froze in fear because of the God that he was before. And he's just like, how can I, who, like me, this, this despised man, offer these before the Lord? How can I be even holding this right now? Right? He had this dreadful fear because he was keenly aware of the problem. And he was starting to doubt the religious tradition solution that was being offered. He was like, I, I, I'm not convinced that this is working. I'm not convinced that my dedicating my life to right, solitude and study is actually producing anything. I'm still noticing exactly the same problem that I had before. Right? And so this is what the Bible says. Verse 12, still quoting from the Old Testament. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. And you might be like, well, Brian, like, I'm, I'm better than, like, most people. Like, I'm a good person, right? And, and that, through comparative morality, you might be right. You might be better than most people. But the problem is, is that Jesus is in this category unto himself. 
that we are so far from what God's standard is of righteousness, of goodness, that none of us are there. Okay, yeah, we can be better than other people, but that's the same problem that the Pharisees fell into in Jesus' day, right? They were, they were pretty righteous people, right? They said the prayers, they fasted, they did all these things, they right, gave offerings, they did all of this stuff, but Jesus said, you know what, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. And like that would have just been like a mind-blowing idea, like, Jesus, they're like the most righteous people that ever lived. How is my righteousness ever going to exceed that? And Jesus did this thing where he raised the bar to make sure we all knew that we missed it, right? He's like, okay, so you've heard you shouldn't commit adultery. Just in case you thought you were like on the good list and not the bad list, if you've even lusted after a person in your heart, you've already committed adultery with them. Or he's like, if you, all right, you've heard that it said you shouldn't murder, right? It's like, yeah, I'm not a murderer. I'm a pretty good person. I didn't murder anyone this week. I'm doing great, right? And, and then he's like, but listen, if you're angry with your brother without cause, you've already committed murder in, in your heart, right? That Jesus raised the bar to make sure that we knew, I don't think I can do that, Jesus, right? Like, I don't think I can make that cut. I'm not going to be on the good list that you're describing. I'm going to miss it. And that was on purpose, that was on purpose because this is a problem. How can a righteous God let sinners like me into his presence? How can he do that? Right? I'm so far from where I'm supposed to be. How can he make that possible? Let's see, verse 20. For no one, I skipped a bunch, so you'll have to go study on your, on your own, right? You noticed that, right? I skipped. I went from 12 to 20. I was probably trying to hide something from you. You should, you should go and read that Bible this week and just make sure... I think that's what, I don't know, I don't trust religious teachers. I, they're, they're just out to manipulate people. You better go read that on your own. Uh, verse 20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. All right? That, I mean, that makes it pretty clear. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. All right? So God's commands, God's law, that was not the solution to the human heart problem that we had. It was simply a diagnostic, all right? It was simply there to show us that we missed the mark, all right? It was the, it was the way that we were tested for the disease that we all have, all right? Oh, yeah, yeah, you've got this unrighteousness problem. What are you going to do to solve it? It wasn't the law that solved the problem, all right? We need new hearts. We need God's Spirit living inside of us. We need to be brought to newness of life. We need to be born again, as Jesus said. Okay, so like that's the way that we're saved. The law was not ever intended to be the solution. All right, so like if, if in Sunday school we're teaching like, hey, kids, just do the Ten Commandments and God will be happy with you. No, the law was never the solution. Now, should we do good things? Yes, all right, Paul answers that later on. I won't get to it today, but Romans 6, 7, a little bit of 8. Uh, so, verse 21, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. All right, so check this out. I highlighted that because I want you to know that the New Testament wasn't all that new. This was what God's plan had been from the beginning. He'd been telling us all along that there would be this suffering servant, this Messiah that would come who would pay the penalty for our sins, right? That he would bear, right, our grief and our transgressions, right? That this Messiah would come. This was the plan all along, all right? So that's why Paul's making this point. He's like, listen, this is what God has been promising, right? Ever since 
Adam and Eve sinned. He said in Genesis 3 that there would be one that would come that would crush the head of the serpent, right? But would have his heel bruised, okay? He started telling them about this Messiah and what family he would come from, where he would be born and all of these things and what he would do. All right, verse 22. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. So we're not made by good works, not by keeping the law, but by placing our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. All right, he was God's solution to our sin problem. He was the one that lived this perfect life that you and I could be forgiven. He paid the penalty for we who are guilty that we could have in exchange his righteousness. That is God's solution. That is how uh, we experience this right relationship with God. And it's done. What is the work that we have to do? Just place our faith in him. Believe what he said about himself. Believe what he said about us. Right? Believe that he actually accomplished his mission when he was right, killed and buried and resurrected. This is how we are made right with God. Verse 23. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We're not going to make it on our own. So everyone has sinned, but the verse before that said that this was true for everyone who believes, that we have right relationship with God. If we believe in Jesus, the one that he offered as a solution. And so everyone had sinned, and then check this out, verse 24, yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Undeserved kindness. So in terms of like when you're in a room at church and you're like, man, I'm never going to be as good as that person or whatever. Like, no, 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 no. None of us deserved God's grace and mercy. None of us deserved this. We were, we were guilty according to the law. All, all of us were guilty, it just said, but yet God, with his undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous, and he did this through Jesus. Verse 25, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. All right, so that when God has mercifully overlooked the wrong that people did in the past, right, he was looking towards the, the work that Jesus would accomplish. When God mercifully overlooks your and my sin, he's looking back on the work that Jesus had already accomplished. All right, it says verse 26, right, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. For Paul, it was present time, right? God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus, right? This is awesome. So when Martin Luther was reading this, that burden of guilt, that fearful dread that he had about this righteous God was suddenly lifted, right? He's, he's like, wait a minute, like, can this be true? Like, it's been hidden in the Bible all these years. Like, it's in plain text. Like, this is true, that God makes sinners righteous, right? That God forgives people like me. And it's not about me trying to do enough good. I never could have made myself right by keeping the law. But he declares sinners righteous, okay? When they believe 
in Jesus. And then verse 27, this is great. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? Right? Like, if, if it was my own good works that got me there, then I could be bragging to everybody, oh, look what I did. Right? Look how great I am. Look how holy I am. But that's not what Christianity is about. Right? That's not what Christianity is about. He says, no, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. Faith just means trusting God, believing the things that he said. That's different than believing in God, in his existence. It's believing the things that God says. All right? So just so you're aware, a little bit different there. He says, so we are made right with God through faith and not obeying the law. Man, I, I do like this translation because, I mean, I'm almost like, I'm running out of things to say about it. It says it pretty much itself, right? Like, hopefully you guys can leave here with no doubt and you don't need my interpretation on this. It's just there, right? It's just there. Uh, Verse 29, he says, after all, is God the God of Jews only? So once again, Paul's asking this rhetorical question. Was, Was that special people the only people that God ever cared about? No. No, in fact, side note, here we go. I'll throw this in. Uh, right, Abraham, the father of the Jews, right, God said it was through him and his family that he would bless all people of the earth, right? So God was never just about exclusively one people group, okay? He was always at work trying to bless sinners like us because the people in Abraham's day, they were doing some horrible things, and God's like, yeah, these people are my enemies. I've got to figure out how can I bless those people, right? That's That's what God's plan has been all along. He says, so... Let's see. Of course, uh, let's see. Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? That's a good question, right? Can I just go on sinning any way I want? It's like, hey, Jesus has got my tab. Everybody, everybody, Jesus is paying for your sins. Let's load it up. Let's go to the buffet line. Here we go, right? Like that's not the way Christians should live, although some of them might, all right? So yeah, that's where hopefully their theology shifts, right? Paul says, right, of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law, all right? That The Bible talks about the royal law, the law of love, that as a result of Christianity, right, as a result of what Jesus did, making us new creatures in Christ Jesus, right, that we fulfill the law finally to be able to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love others as we love ourselves, all right? That it's through faith, it's through seeing God's undeserved kindness that he gave me that I can start loving people who I don't think deserve it, all right? Just, I mean, just being real, right? Just being real, right? Right, yeah, none of us did. None of us did. All right, so check this out. Now he goes to this case about Abraham, Romans 4. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? Verse 2, if his good deeds made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. So even in the Old Testament, this idea of being made righteous by good works didn't exist, right? The founder of the Jewish faith was made righteous because he believed God, all right? And, and we've got to be careful about this. Even in a conversation, uh, I think it was this week or last week, with my oldest son ever, he's six years old, like he, him and I were just talking about, I sometimes ask him, what do you think about Jesus? Like, what have you been thinking about God lately? And he, and he told me, he's like, I think, do you... 
I think maybe if I'm a good per- like if I'm good enough, then maybe I can go to heaven. And it's like, I didn't teach him that. Right? I didn't teach him that. And it's like, oh, like actually no. Every, like that's a good guess. But no, like none of us can be good enough. Right? None of us can be good enough. And and we've just got to be careful like so often throughout human history. Right? That's where people go to. They think maybe my good can outweigh my bad. Right? We're trying to solve this problem on our own and we can't. It was a God-sized problem that only he could solve. All right? And, and so like even my own son, he like had this thought and like so we talked about it. Like sometimes with my kids, like we talk about the fact that, right, we are like, because there's the good guys, bad guys, I've got all four boys. So when they play like, oh, this is a good guy or this is a bad guy, right? And, and so sometimes we talk about the ideas like, hey, we're all bad guys, but Jesus makes us good guys, right? That's like their level understanding that I try to talk to them about God. Uh, and, and so even Everett had this idea, and just so you're aware, all religions have this idea of works-based righteousness, works-based salvation, or works-based enlightenment, right? That if I do enough stuff, maybe I'll eventually stop this reincarnation cycle, right? It's all about what I have to do, and they're all missing the point because, sadly, I mean, even sometimes branches of denominations of Christianity get caught up in that as well, thinking like, no, 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 it's about these good works that you have to do. No, no, it's all about the work that Jesus already did for us. Completely, it's on his shoulders and he solved the problem all right so let's see uh verse four it's, he says uh, when people work their wages are not a gift but something that they have earned but people are counted righteous not because of their work but because of their faith in god who forgives sinners right we place our faith in the god who prides himself in his mercy Right? In, in his grace, this unmerited favor that he gives us. We, we believe in the God who forgives sinners. All right, let me, let me fast forward through some of these verses. Uh, let's see, I'm going to have to skip that one. You guys are going to have to read this on your own. I'm running out of time. Uh, let's see. Let's see, I'm going to skip that one. Oh, boy. I mean, fortunately, like Paul's been saying, a lot of the same idea for a while. Let's, let's skip to Romans 5, verse 1. Romans 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. One of the things that like I said, Martin Luther experienced was this dread was removed from his life when he realized what the gospel was about, right? That it was replaced with this joy that we as believers experience, all right? That we do not need to fear God. Uh, in First John, the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear, all right? That we can have confidence on the day of judgment, all right? That as a result of this gospel, we can even know that we are saved, that we've been changed, that we can experience God's Holy Spirit inside of us. It's not like a, a I hope so sort of faith. I hope that God will be happy with me when I die. No, no, no. We can know this on the basis of what Jesus had already done, right? And now we respond with joy. One, one of the things that uh, Martin Luther did as, as, uh, as he started studying the Bible and as, as the world started to change as a result, the church started to change as a result of just simply reading the Bible. He not only did write all of these works about theology and just completely bring us back to what the gospel was all about, but he also wrote songs. He wrote hymns, 
all right, where, where he actually started encouraging the entire church and not just a portion of it to participate in singing. That, that this gospel was such good news that it's something that we sing about. All right, this is a, a quote from a, a book about Luther. It says, at every opportunity, Luther and his colleagues were concerned to get the whole congregation, not just part of it, involved in singing, teaching them of the need to sing the scriptural word, giving them the texts and melodies to sing, and supplying the musical means by which an antiphony of unison and harmony graced their services of worship. One of the cool things about this Christian faith is that we have joy, that we sing about what God has done. And one of the convenient things about getting these songs into our hearts is that it serves as a portable theology. All right, this, this next song that we'll do, actually we'll have the worship team start coming up so I'll, they'll eventually kick me off. Uh, right, but, but one of the benefits is like this next song that we're going to sing, it's about this idea of, of praising God even in the midst of difficult times. But it, as, as we allow those words that we sing out to kind of fill our hearts and our minds, that when we enter a season like that, we'll know what's true, right? We'll know the truth. We'll be able to believe and sing and rejoice to God even in the midst of suffering. Yeah, you guys can sneak up, right? Uh, right that, and then when there's seasons where things are going great, we'll also still be able to rejoice in God's truth and not merely on the circumstances that we are facing, right? That it's not going to be the Christian faith, the Christian life is not about, right, just is my life going well? Is, did God protect me and put me in this little convenient bubble? All right, because there still will be times of suffering. There will be times of difficulty. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus died for us. And although this momentary suffering exists, it does not compare to the weight of glory that is yet to be revealed in us. So, so we still sing, all right? Allow the Word of God. Familiarize yourself with it. Read it on your own. Listen to the Bible. That's going to completely change your life and your family and your community. It happened back then, and it will continue to happen now. Let's pray before we sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and kindness that you give us. We thank you, Lord, for your love that you bestowed on us, that you, you chose to die for us when we were your enemies. And so, Lord, with this undeserved mercy and grace, we are just in awe of who you are. We worship you for who you are and who you've declared yourself to be. We yield our hearts to you and your word. If there's places of condemnation in our heart, may we be reminded that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we can be fully persuaded that your gospel is true, that we can be fully assured that you have forgiven and saved us on the basis that you have died and were buried and rose again. That, Lord, you wanted to make sure that we knew that you loved us and forgave us. And if this message is new to any who are in here this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir in their heart, that you would bring them to the place of repentance, of turning from living their lives their own way and trusting in you, placing their faith in you and what you've done and start following you and reading your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Mm -hmm.